You are listening to audio from Faith Church. If you are in the Seminole, St. Pete area, we would love for you to join us on a Sunday. To learn more, visit us at faithrs.org. If you have your Bible or your Bible app, you can grab that and go with me to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 1 will be our text this morning. And if you don't own a Bible, we would love to give you one. There are stacks of Bibles on those tables in the back of the room. You can take one now. You can take one on your way out of worship today. That's our gift to you with no strings attached. And if you don't know your way around the Bible very well, the passage we'll be studying will be on the screen so you can follow along with us here. If you're willing and able, will you stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word? All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for His people. So listen carefully to these words, God's words, recorded for us in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, And over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So for months, I have promised you a bonus episode in this Who Am I series that addresses the subject of transgenderism. And today is the day. Maybe you didn't know that when you came to Faith Church this morning. I'm so sorry. But now it's too late. You're here. Today is the day. Today I want us to think about living in a transgender age. Living in a transgender age. According to Pew Research Center, roughly half of all Americans believe that an individual's gender might be different from his or her biological sex. The numbers aren't much better among those who claim to be Christian. Nearly 40% of self-identified Christians believe that a person's gender might be different from his or her sex at birth. We do, in fact, live in a transgender age. Carl Truman, in his book, Strange New World, writes this, If you employ people, if you work with people, If your children go to the public schools, you are going to find the trans question pressing upon you. Dread it. Run from it. The trans question arrives all the same. What then should we do? In 1948... C.S. Lewis published an essay with the title, Living in a Nuclear Age. The essay was published just three years after Oppenheimer's Manhattan Project and the subsequent bombings of World War II. So as you can imagine, it was a frightful time in history. 
similar to our own time in that many thought they were witnessing a power far more destructive than anything they had seen before. Now, on the one hand, the people of that age were right. This weapon was unique in its destructive potential. But on the other hand, it was just another in a long line of threats. A nuclear age, Lewis says, is no time to panic. The beginning of his essay will set the tone for my talk today. In 1948, Lewis penned these words. In one way, we think a great deal too much of the atomic bomb. How are we to live in an atomic age? I am tempted to reply, why? As you would have lived in the 16th century when the plague visited London almost every year. Or as you would have lived in a Viking age when raiders from Scandinavia might land and cut your throat any night. Or indeed as you already are living in an age of cancer, an age of syphilis, an age of paralysis, of air raids, railway accidents, motor accidents. In other words, do not let us begin by exaggerating the novelty of our situation. It is perfectly ridiculous to go about whimpering and drawing long faces because the scientists have added one more chance of painful and premature death to a world which already bristled with such chances and in which death itself was not a chance at all, but a certainty. This is the first point to be made, and the first action to be taken is to pull ourselves together. What Lewis said of an atomic age is true of a transgender age. This is no time to panic. This is no time to panic. We must pull ourselves together Think biblically about this topic and then engage the culture Christianly. That's our goal for today. I'm going to ask you to lend me your ear for quite a bit longer than usual today. We have a lot to cover together. Now, you did get one extra hour of sleep. I'm trusting that you came caffeinated this morning. You should always be caffeinated. I'm going to ask you to lend me your ear for a little bit longer than usual. I've organized this talk around two, and only two, key questions. These will be the two main parts of this morning's message. First, if someone experiences a clash between their biological sex and their internal sense of self, which one determines who they are and why? The why there is just as important. And second, how can we remain committed to the truth of God's Word while living in such a sexually confused and often combative culture? So that's where we're going. Part one. If someone experiences a clash, a mismatch between their biological sex and their internal sense of self, which one determines who they are and why? I want to begin by giving you our culture's answer to this question. We need to understand the cultural answer before critiquing it. So we'll start there. Our culture answers this question really in a very simple way. You are what you feel. That's the cultural mantra. You are what you feel. The more academic term for this is expressive individualism. Expressive individualism. 
I will find my true self, my authentic self, by acting outwardly in accordance with my inward feelings. Who I feel myself to be inside, that's the true me that needs to be brought out. Now, we have to understand several related terms in this transgender conversation. If you haven't noticed this already, the transgender conversation is all about language. And at times, it seems like there are so many terms and so many abbreviations, it's just this giant alphabet soup. But basically, there are four terms that we need to have a working understanding of in this transgender conversation. The first term is sex which in this context refers to biological composition. Biological composition, from our bodies down to our cellular level. Human beings are male or female. Biological composition. In the transgender conversation, however, there's a second term. Gender, or what is sometimes referred to as gender identity. And in the transgender conversation... Sex and gender are not synonymous, though they used to be. Not that long ago, you'll no doubt remember people that you know having gender reveal parties, right? And what happened at those gender reveal parties? They revealed what the ultrasound showed, the sex of the baby, right? So it wasn't that long ago that these terms were synonymous, but in the transgender conversation, they're not. Sex refers to biological composition. Gender, or more often gender identity, refers to a person's internal sense of self as male or female, or both, or neither. So we have biological composition, internal sense of self. And that brings us to the third term, gender dysphoria. A person with gender dysphoria senses a clash, a mismatch between their biological composition and their internal sense of self as either male or female. So the person may have the biology of a man but feel internally like a woman. And the term for that is gender dysphoria. This is a real thing. People actually do feel this way. The word dysphoria is sort of the opposite of euphoria. Euphoria is an intense happiness. Dysphoria is an intense unhappiness. Gender dysphoria is the belief that the body is lying. The body is lying. And then the fourth term, transgender. To follow that feeling that the body is lying is to be transgender. It is to adopt an expression, an outward way of life, that is not consistent with your biological composition, but is consistent with your internal sense of self. This is most often referred to as transitioning. And there's three levels of transitioning in the transgender conversation. There's the social level, the hormonal level, and the surgical level. The social level involves dressing in the attire of the gender you identify with internally. The hormonal level involves receiving hormonal treatment, seeking to bring the, the body into chemical balance with whatever that gender is that a person identifies with. And then, of course, the surgical level involves actually changing the body itself. All of this 
to say. The culture's answer to our first question, what if I have this clash between my biological self and my internal sense of self? What should I do? The culture's answer is very clear. You are what you feel. Biology does not matter. Biology does not take priority. You are what you feel. That's the culture's answer. Now, what about Scripture? I want to critique the cultural view. First, by showing you what the Bible says, but then maybe there's someone here who would say, you know what, I don't really believe in the authority of the Bible. I'm just here today because I'm curious. I'm not yet convinced. You need to know that there are problems with the transgender answer that you've got to deal with even if you don't believe in the authority of the Bible. So we'll come to those as well. But first, what does Scripture teach on this subject? How does Scripture answer this question? The Bible, unlike our culture, points to the priority of the physical body. The priority of the physical body, not the feelings. Not the feelings. That passage that I read for us earlier, the end of Genesis 1, helps us develop what we could call a theology of the body. And there are four planks in this theology of the body. The first is that God created us, Genesis 1.26. We do not believe that human beings are on this planet accidentally. We are here because God created us, and that us is an embodied us. An embodied us. God gave us the gift of bodies. The gift of bodies. You know, some world religions have a very low view of the body. They have a very high view of the soul or the immaterial part of the person, but a very low view of the body. Christianity is not like that. Christianity affirms the goodness of the body and the goodness, the joys of the bodily life. Think of it this way. What's at the very center of our faith? The belief that Jesus Christ, fully God, became fully man. He took on flesh. He took on a body. There is no higher compliment to the human body than this fact that Jesus Christ himself took on flesh in order to redeem us. Do you understand all that that means? It means that Jesus had to be a fetus in the womb. A toddler wandering around trying to learn how to walk. A teenager going through puberty. Eventually a grown man. Jesus became flesh and he remained flesh. He remained flesh. When he was raised, he was raised bodily from the grave. When he ascended into heaven, he didn't ditch his human body like a spaceship, you know, ditching its It's boosters or whatever. No, at the center of heaven right now, at the right hand of God the Father, is a human body. There is no higher compliment to the body itself. God created us with this good gift of bodies. You, whoever you are, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. You have the body God meant for you to have. Now, some of you need to hear that this morning. We all have various struggles with our own bodies. You have the body God meant for you to have. 
Embodied existence is a good thing. Secondly, in Genesis 126, we learn that God created us in His image. To be created in the image of God is what sets humanity apart from the rest of creation. And it means many things. But to simplify it, it means that we were created to have a personal relationship with God Himself and to represent God on this earth. To be created in the image of God is to image God, to represent Him and His loving rule. But this also means that every human being is created in the image of God. Therefore, every human being has dignity. Every body has dignity. Third, Genesis 127 teaches us that God created us male and female. Genesis, the true story of the beginning of all things, clearly affirms the gender binary. The word binary means that there are two and only two options. God created us as either male or female. There are no other options. We must understand that because in our embodied existence we are fallen, that means that we will have a wide variety of feelings and emotions that will be misleading. They will not be true. Young people especially, I think, need to hear this. You will have a variety of emotions, feelings that are misleading. Your feelings cannot be trusted as the ultimate authority. It's far better to look to your God-given body. That's how you know if He made you male or female. And then fourth and finally, God created us male and female for one another. Genesis 1.28 God made us complementary beings. One of the things it means to be created in His image is to create, to create families, to build societies, build cultures, build civilizations. But that can't be done without the man and the woman functioning the way God designed us to function in complementary union. This is the theology of the body that we find in God's Word. We must conclude then that the culture's answer, the transgender agenda, is problematic. But, again, let's say you're here today and you don't believe in the authority of the Bible. You just showed up, you're curious, you're not yet convinced. There are problems with the transgender answer that you still must deal with. Even if you don't believe that the Bible has the final say. Let me point out just a couple of these problems that you're going to have to deal with. The first is that inconsistencies abound. It's not just the case that, biblically speaking, the transgender answer is problematic, but also logically it's problematic. The reasoning is rickety. Inconsistencies abound. Here's one example. Why is it the case that I am a bigot if I insist that we ought to bring a person's internal feelings in line with his body. Why is that a bigoted response to the question? 
would it not also then be true that you're just as bigoted? If you are in favor of carving up someone's body in order to bring their body in alignment with their feelings, maybe we're just all bigots in this trans reality. Well, here's one. If it's okay for a man to become a woman, then is it okay for a Caucasian man to become an Asian woman? Is it acceptable for a 6'5 man to become a 5'6 woman? Is it acceptable for a 40-year-old man to become a fourth-grade girl? These are matters that have to do with biology, and the transgender answer asserts that biology does not hold sway. So you see, there are all sorts of inconsistencies. That's one problem you have to deal with, whether or not you believe in the authority of the Bible. Here's another. Feelings are fluid. Our feelings change. Our feelings are often determined by our family, our peers, the deep stories of our day. Nancy Piercy has a book called Love Thy Body. It's an excellent resource on this subject. And in this book, she contends that 80 to 90% of children who experience gender dysphoria, remember that's the feeling that your body's lying to you, 80 to 90% of children who experience gender dysphoria lose those feelings by the time they reach adulthood. 80 to 90%. Now listen, at a bare minimum, at a bare minimum, that's a strong argument against the hormonal and the surgical levels of transitioning. At a bare minimum. You got to deal with that. And here's one more. And this is the most significant of all, I think. The transgender answer is not actually an answer. What I mean is, it's not actually a solution. There is nothing a doctor can do to change the biological composition of a person. Sure, body parts can be changed. Hormonal treatment, sure, all that can be done. But at a cellular level, at a cellular level, that man remains a man. Biologically, chromosomally, he remains a he. It's not actually a solution. So you see, the problems, the problems are abundant. Sooner or later, when humanity plays God, sooner or later we learn that the job is just a little bit beyond our pay grade. One of the most vivid illustrations of this point is Mary Shelley's classic book, Frankenstein. Published in 1818, the story was the genesis of the horror genre. Now, despite modern confusion, Frankenstein is the name of the creator, not the creation. Dr. Victor Frankenstein sets out on a scientific quest to craft a new humanity. Victor's early life was full of pain and sorrow, so he had dreams, dreams of curing humanity's afflictions. But his passion became an obsession. And his obsession brought forth a regrettable creation, what he calls the monster. None but those who have experienced them can conceive of the enticements of science 
Victor writes in the story. In other studies, you go as far as others have gone before you, and there's nothing more to know. But in a scientific pursuit, there's a continual food for discovery and wonder. It was these feelings that Victor began, with which he began the creation of a new species. It became his sole occupation. He pursued nature to her hiding places, explored unknown powers, unfolded to the world the deepest mysteries of creation. It was on a dreary night of November, he writes, that I beheld the accomplishment of my toils. I had worked hard for nearly two years for the sole purpose of infusing life into an inanimate body. But now that I had finished, now that I had finished, the beauty of the dream vanished, and breathless horror and disgust filled my heart. From here, the story oscillates between regret and revenge until finally everyone is dead. And the haunting moral of this tale is that there are consequences to playing God. Now, that's only one reason I share this story with you. There are consequences to playing God. The other reason I share this story is because unlike Shelley's classic, unlike it, this morning we are not talking about monsters. We're talking about people. See, I fear the culture has erred in one way, by playing God and thinking that some good will come of that. But I fear the church has erred in another way by treating transgender individuals more as monsters than as people. But what did Genesis just teach us? Every body has dignity. We are all created in the image of God. So we must then ask a second question this morning. We must think about how we, as Christians, as the people of God, will engage this issue in society, how we will engage our culture. So that brings us to our second question, part two of the morning. How can we remain committed to the truth of God's Word while living in such a sexually confused and often combative culture? And to answer this question, I want us to think about where we live or where we spend the majority of our time. I want us to think about the home, the school, and the workplace. The home, the school, and the workplace. Let's start at home. Parents, grandparents, I want you to listen to me for a minute. This is very important. You cannot hide your children, your grandchildren, from the transgender conversation. You cannot Shield them from it. You must get ahead of it. You must help them think biblically about it. Now, you do that in two ways. The first is by teaching truth in your home. All of that that we just learned in Genesis 1, that full theology of the body, the goodness of embodied existence, you have the body God meant for you to have. You teach that in your home. 
That's one part. The other part is you must help your children, your grandchildren, identify deception. You must help them identify deception. And the way you do that is by showing them the error and exposing it as such. I've told you before that sometimes I take my children to see movies that have an anti-Christian agenda. The LGBTQ plus agenda, for example. I sometimes do that. And I would encourage you to do the same with your children after thinking through three questions. First, how old are my children? How old are they? Obviously, your five-year-old is not yet ready for the conversations that you should be having with your 11-year-old. So how old is my children? That's question one. Question two, how graphic is the movie? How graphic is the movie? I don't want to put my son on my back and then dive face first into the filth of Hollywood. Certain movies should be off limits to him and me. So how graphic is the content? And then third, who are the characters? Who are the characters who are portrayed as homosexual or transgender or whatever the case might be? And my rule of thumb on that one is, if the hero of the story is portrayed that way, it's more important to see the movie. If it's a minor character... It's a minor issue, but if it's the hero of the story, it's actually more important, I think, for me to take my boys to see that movie and show them how that's designed to work on them. You see, hero stories are powerful teaching tools. Powerful teaching tools. This is one of the reasons I took my boys to see the latest movie in the Fantastic Beasts series. Because in that movie, the hero of the story, Dumbledore, the one that all the other stories have taught us to love and to want to be like, It is he, Dumbledore, who's portrayed as gay. It's just a matter of time before the heroes of the stories will be portrayed as a transgender person. I want my boys to see that that is the creator of that story. That's that creator's intention to hook them and bring them to a new way of thinking. The hero is the hook designed to drag us to a new way of thinking about what's right and wrong. What's acceptable and unacceptable. We must expose that. We cannot shield our children. I understand how you feel. I wish I could shield my boys from all of this. I wish I didn't have to have these conversations. But listen to me, there are so many places where they could go with their questions. We want them to come to us. Talk with your children. Teach and help them identify deception. That's what we can do in the home. Now, what about at school? I'll try to be brief here. But what I have to say is going to be a little controversial, and it's probably going to offend some of you. Parents really only have three options here, right? Public schools, by which I mean the government school system. Private schools, and there are several sub-options there. Or homeschool. What I want you to see this morning is that each of those comes with certain costs. Each one of them comes with certain costs. Homeschool typically costs us a lot of our time. Private school typically costs us a lot of our money. But I truly believe that the costliest of all in this cultural moment in which we live 
is the government school system. Because if it continues in the direction it's headed now, it might just cost us our children's souls. You have to see that all education is in one way or another religious education. Beliefs and practices will be instilled. A morality will be imposed. The question is not, will a morality be imposed, but which morality? If your children stay in the government school system, and if the government school system continues in the direction it's headed now, a morality will be imposed, and it will not be a Christian one. Did you know that there are schools with transition closets where children can go to school and they can get new clothes to put on while they're at school and then remove those clothes and go home so their parents never know anything about it. Their parents never know anything about their gender experimentation efforts. A morality will be imposed. Now look, I, I know this is hard to hear. On multiple levels. First of all, it's hard to think. If you've already got a tight budget, it's hard to think how in the world could we afford something like private school. And then there are many of you that are committed to God's Word, and you're trying to be a good teacher in the government school system. You're trying your best. Please don't hear me say this morning that you personally have done anything wrong. You can be a great teacher in an ungodly system. But maybe it's time for a change. Maybe this isn't what you signed up for. I think every parent and grandparent ought to at least pray and consider other options. What homeschool might look like for your family. What a private school, a Christian school might look like for your family. As a first recommendation, I'm going to recommend that you check out a school called Covenant Academy. Over the last several years, Faith Church has developed a bit of an informal partnership with Covenant Academy. Many of our very own gospel partners are on their teaching or administrative staff now. Many of our own elders have put our children in that school. It's been a good experience for us. Maybe it'll be a good experience for you. Maybe not. But at least think and pray about other options. Because a morality will be imposed. So that's schools. Now finally, thanks for your patience. This is probably the most complex one of all, right? The workplace. I can't even tell you how many emails I get, people inquiring, what am I supposed to do about this that I'm experiencing in my workplace? I mean, we got to work to live, right? How can you even begin to have a conversation about a private school if you don't have a job? And yet... We're experiencing, experiencing all sorts of complexities in our workplace. Mandatory classes, gender sensitivity training, preferred pronouns for our coworkers. How do we navigate all this? As we get ready to wrap up, I think we find some wisdom, some very practical wisdom in the Old Testament book of Daniel. I want to encourage you to read the book of Daniel on your own time, but let me summarize the story for you. This takes place at a time in the history of God's people when God's people had rebelled against them. They had turned away. And so God captured their attention by allowing them to be captured by a foreign enemy, Babylon. 
The king's name was Nebuchadnezzar. And when Nebuchadnezzar conquered a people, he deported the best and the brightest of that people. Now, this was a political ploy. The idea was to take their best, their brightest, and make them like us, to erase their identity and assimilate them into the culture of Babylon. Daniel and his three friends were among those who were deported to Babylon. And so the whole story of Daniel is the story of them living in this foreign nation. They look around and they're a minority and they have to learn how to live as a prophetic minority. They have to learn how to live faithfully in the midst of a faithless people. And they do so by having compassion and at times counter-cultural courage. But here's what's particularly interesting about the story of Daniel. What's particularly interesting is how much of the Babylonian culture Daniel accepted. How many times he said yes before finally saying no. See, when Daniel was moved to Babylon, he got a whole new occupation. And this new occupation, believe it or not, came with a new education. For three years, Daniel had to study the language and the literature of the Babylonians. This would have been challenging intellectually and spiritually. Spiritually, it was challenging because Daniel had to spend all of his time reading about false gods and rituals. And the Bible tells us that God gave Daniel understanding into these things. In other words, God helped Daniel understand things that were contradictory to his faith. Now, why in the world would God do that? Because if you're going to live in Babylon... If you're going to have conversations with the Babylonians, then you must understand the Babylonians. Daniel was willing to accept a new occupation, a whole new education, but eventually he did draw the line. He drew the line when it came to eating the king's food. Now, after after swallowing so much of the Babylonian culture, why not just swallow the king's food? What was the deal there? Probably... To share the food of the king's table would have meant to express absolute allegiance to the king himself. And that was something that Daniel simply could not swallow. So he took a courageous stand. But if you read the narrative, he took that courageous stand courteously. Courteously. So what can we glean from this in closing? For those of you who are faced with mandatory gender sensitivity training, I would suggest you go to the training. Not because you agree with it. Not because you agree with it. But because if you're going to live in Babylon, if you're going to have relationships, conversations with Babylonians, maybe it would be helpful to know what the Babylonians think. But when it comes to using the preferred pronouns of transgender individuals, I suggest that it's here we need to draw the line. I would suggest staying away from pronouns altogether. It's better to simply use the legal name or even the preferred name because names are not objectively gendered in the way that pronouns are. They differ from culture to culture. Now, that's going to be a bit cumbersome at times, always using the the name of that individual and avoiding the pronouns, but at least that way, you're not referring to someone using a gendered term 
that does not match the body God gave them. But these are complex issues. I get it. And in a way, honestly, you guys have it so much harder than I do. So much harder. You're facing questions and challenges I don't know anything about. And here I am trying to help you. But really and truthfully, it's God's Word. And God's Word has wisdom for every culture and every challenge we face. So keep looking to that. I want to close how I started. This is not a time to panic. It's not a time to panic. It is a time to prepare yourself and prepare your children to know what you believe and why you believe it. It is a time to resist both temptations, the temptation to be completely separated from the world, and the temptation to become just like the world. We must be like Daniel and his friends, engaging our culture as exiles, living faithfully among the faithless. And all the while, all the while, trusting, trusting that God plays the long game. God plays the long game, and that means that no matter how dark our historical moment might seem, His will shall be done. On earth, as it is in heaven. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day and this opportunity to together try our best to open your word and tackle what is a very complex and very real issue. I know I've not been able to answer every question today. I imagine people are wondering and thinking many things. Lord, I pray that you will work in hearts today. Convince us of the truth of your word. Give us the strength we need to face the challenges that surely will come our way. God, help us to be faithful. Like Daniel was. We look around and we realize that we really are a minority. But help us to be a prophetic minority. To speak truth. To speak truth in love. We need your help in that. Your word teaches us that when we lack wisdom, if we will ask for it, you will so generously provide it. And so that's how we close this time today, by asking you for wisdom. In Jesus' name.